Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung as the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on, pays tribute to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Yarra, and gives respect to Elders past, present and emerging. You're listening to a Yarra Libraries podcast. Over the past few months, many of you have asked for escape reads for something light to recharge with between the news cycle. We've enjoyed recommending books to take you away for a bit, and with that in mind, we're bringing you this discussion between authors Minnie Dark and Tony Jordan, recorded in early March this year. Keep listening to hear Minnie and Tony discuss the challenges of writing 21st century romance, what makes a good romantic hero or heroine, and some of the tropes they love and don't love in popular romantic fiction and film. This is an edited recording with audience questions at the end. Thanks, Megan. And can I just start by saying thank you for the clap for my PhD? It's very new. I only graduated a couple of weeks ago. And just when you were thinking it's very impressive that I have a PhD in romantic comedy, I have to tell you that Minnie and I have not really met before, but she was my examiner. So she knows even more about romantic comedy than I do, enough to actually do the work examining my PhD. And I I should say that Tony's PhD thesis was, and I wrote this in the examination report, the single best PhD thesis I've ever read. Thank you. Um, And I I have read and examined a lot, and hers was astonishingly erudite as well as amazingly clever and creative. (laughs) And it's pretty rare for me to really enjoy reading a PhD thesis, but I just loved reading Tony, so she really really deserves all of that. Congratulations. Thank you. So we're, at, we're able to talk about romance from an academic perspective and from a creative perspective. And if you have any kind of Dear Abby questions, we'll give them a crack from a personal perspective. Why not? Um, I have not read your new book. I've only read this one. Um, can you can you start by telling us a little bit about the new one because it's brand new? I, I can. So here is the new book, The Lost Love Song. Uh, so really, so incredibly new um, off the shelves. So what both Starcrossed and The Lost Love Song have in common is that they have a central plot and then they have interweaving chapters where we find out more about a world where you get not just the central story but... Um, effects from that central story out into a much greater world. So both of them have quite large casts. So in the first book, it's astrology that holds everything together. The premise of the first novel is that a journalist decides to change the horoscopes in order to get the attention of the boy she likes. The premise of the second book is that there's a love song that's been written by one person for another, but it becomes lost somewhere around the world but can it find its way back all by itself by jumping from ear to ear and heart to heart? So both stories traverse lots and lots of different characters as as the plot progresses. So central plot, smaller plots around the edge. So is this also contemporary because this is contemporary? Yes, yes, both set in the now. Okay, I find that incredibly difficult. So I actually, partway through writing this book, was tearing my hair out And I wonder if you're familiar with this feeling. Because one of the things about romance that you really need is obstacles. Yes. And I think Jane Austen had more obstacles than we have. 
I think we actually have very few obstacles. Well, we ha- she couldn't, like Lizzie couldn't ring up Darcy and say, hey, I think we got off on the wrong foot. Do you want to have a coffee? You know, it's all these things that get in the way. So what gets in the way today? How do you manage that? Well, this is right. So what can possibly get in the way today? If you think about it, who's really going to pay attention to their parents? You know, once upon a time, that was the great obstacle, yeah, wasn't it? Right. The, yep. the bride's parents, they were going to be the great obstacle. Or in persuasion, the, the you know, older lady giving advice. Mm-hmm. Or class. Class could be a really big obstacle. Once upon a time, you might actually be able to lose someone. These days, you just Google them. You're going to find them, aren't you? If you want to know something about somebody, you're just going to look up their Facebook profile, really, aren't you? So we're, we're really short on obstacles in the contemporary era, which makes, I think, writing romances set in the contemporary era really hard. Did, so did you take a long time coming up with this plot? It did take me a while, but what do you do for obstacles? Well, the last one, the fragments was historical, pretty mm-hmm. much. So much of the, uh, for a start, I, I want to slightly differentiate between romance, which I've written, and love stories. So just so that you understand what I mean by those. In my mind, romances have happy endings, and love stories do not. And uh, that's kind of how my definition works. I think love stories almost have to have sad endings. This book has a love story and a romance. Oh, see, that's beautiful. That gives you that complexity of feeling, so it's not just a simplistic notion. I think what we're left with in contemporary romance is internal obstacles to love. And I think that the kind of internal obstacles to love that that I've relied on here, and I think perhaps might be what we have left, are things like fear of rejection. So that's a really big reason that someone might not reach out to someone else or might not put all their cards on the table because it's pretty terrifying, the idea of being rejected, isn't it? So actually saying to somebody, hey, how about it, babe? That could be pretty frightening. Uh, and then there are other feelings like a, a lack of worthiness, you know, a, a lack of belief in your own lovability. So I think those are perhaps the kinds of obstacles that we're really dealing with in contemporary romance, but it the challenge that you're left with then, I know what you think about this, Tony, is that you often then have to do a lot of writing of people's interiority. So rather than a lot of action, people doing things, you've got a lot of people thinking things and feeling things. And it can be hard to really vary, you know, how many ways can you write a pounding heart, really? <laughs> but you have to keep coming up with more ways to write feelings and to write thoughts. And how do you feel about this idea of comedy in romance like there's some quite funny moments in this but often in the subplots rather than the main plot because Minnie's subplots are very intricate clever things that are surprising come up in surprising ways do you think comedy is an important part or not I think I'm going to answer that question slightly to one side I think that a lot of what I know about romance actually comes from film I think I'm very very influenced Mm -hmm. by film and if you think about a film like Love Actually there is comedy in Love Actually but there's also um bittersweetness and there's also just downright sadness and one of the things I find sad about that movie is that Emma Thompson's love story doesn't have a happy ending for her and so in Starcrossed there are uh, subplots that have you know the tied with a bow happy ending and then there are others that have that more bittersweet kind of ending so I I wonder 
if it's nice in a book to have that kind of different texture, those sorts of stories that end in different ways. Yeah. I, what do you think about comedy in romance? Um, I love comedy in romance. This is this book, my most recent one, The Fragments, is probably the only the one with the least humour that I've ever written and I think that's why I found it the most difficult because there's some parts of love that I just find hilarious. Like sex is really hilarious, really, like the faces and the positions and the awkwardness and like there's a lot of potential there to be funny. It's it's almost more exposing to play it straight because there's a certain vulnerability that creeps in. I remember my husband who doesn't come to very many events he had we were in Adelaide for the weekend and I did an event at the Adelaide Writers Centre and it was a room not dissimilar to this he came along and he sat at the back and we did our thing and then people asked questions and one lady put up her hand and said I really want to compliment you on the sex scenes I think they're fantastic and I could see him almost sitting up straighter at the back you know just a bit more kind of chuffed with himself and, um, and she said, but they're very brief, aren't they? They're quite short. And he, and he kind of then dramatically slouched in his chair. So it made me realise kind of that you have to delve into intimate things. Let's talk about husbands. Right? <laughs> yeah, I have one too. Yes. Um, and he and I have been married 17 years, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, it's it's starting to be a while now since I can remember having sex with anyone else. <laughs> and so, you know, you would think then that, you know, of course your repertoire is going to get, you know, a, a little bit, you know, uh, less <laughs> <laughs> daring, isn't it? But actually um, my husband reads my books and he looks at me and he says, I think I know you and then I read your book and I realise I have no idea what goes <laughs> on in your head. Is is that how it is for you and your well, husband? Well, it, it's interesting the changes in the in the process over time because when I started writing, it's very important to me that that when I'm describing sex, it's actually doable. Like I don't want to write a sex scene that is like you have to be a 17-year-old gymnast to pull off. Like I see that's just not impo- not what I want to do. So like when I first started writing, I would say to him, can you just lift me up and push and see how how far how long can you lift me against that wall? And he'll go, okay. So he'll lift <laughs> me up and hold me against the wall. And then as the decades go by, now we're lying in bed in our jammies, and and I say, do you reckon you could lift me against a wall? And he goes, nah. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> like the, he must love your research process. <laughs> the, the active part of that process is completely gone. It's all theoretical now. <laughs> But uh, I think that a novelist's imagination is quite an extraordinary place and you can actually really surprise the people who know and love you. They, they do think that they know, you know, what sorts of things you're capable of in your imagination but people are often a bit shocked. Are, are people in your life a bit shocked about what you can come up with? Um, everybody thinks uh, – I mean, my first book, which was a romantic comedy um, called Addition about a woman who – counts things she's an obsessive counter of things and certainly I have numerous control issues in my life but actually counting is not one of them I've sublimated my own control issues into this you know fictional field but often when I go I mean Megan has not been like this at all but sometimes when I go to libraries the lovely librarian will say look 
there's six chairs instead of ten in the front row. Are you going to be okay with that? Or, you know, if we start at 6.35, like they think it's me, you know? And I think that's kind of – I'm flattered actually by that, that they that it reads so real that they think that, that that's me on the page. Yeah. Um, Starcrossed is – has a lot to do with astrology. So during the couple of years I was writing that book, I was very current with astrology. What star sign are you, Tony? Do you know the romance in this book? That's me and my husband. I'm a Sagittarius, he's an Aquarius. Well, you two are a great match. There you go. Okay, so you're the Aquarian. No, no, I'm the Sagittarius. Okay, great. He's the Aquarian. Lovely. So you and I are both fire signs. I'm the Leo. Right. So, but for two years I knew an awful lot about astrology and then this book's all about music and so I've spent, you know, the last couple of years being you know, really current with But you, you with must music. pick these topics because you have an underlying interest or an underlying connection in some way. Yes. Like you don't just go, I'll start at A and pick astrology <laughs> for a book, you know. But you do get for that period of time very deep into it. You must, yes. you know, for addition, yeah. you must have thought a great deal Absolutely. about those things. And then yep. often by the time a book is released, you've moved on to the, to the next thing in your life or whatever so but are you musical are you do you play instruments do you um actually I've written a new biography for this book and I think this actually really sums it up I think it's at the beginning in a parallel universe Minnie Dark is a concert cellist Ah. but in this one alas she plays no musical instruments at all while she studied violin and piano as a child the only real proficiency she gained was in the art of keeping her music teachers chatting so my poor parents spent a lot of money on music lessons that I would go to and see if I could get my piano and my violin teacher to talk for a full half hour so I didn't actually have to do any work. And what about astrology? Can you draw a chart? Like if I no. threw you a date, do you reckon you could do it? No, but when I was a kid I, I lived with, you know, a mother who read magazines. I had two grandmothers who read magazines and, you know, so there was always the new idea and the Women's Weekly and the Dolly magazine because mm-hmm. Dolly magazine was cool when I right. was a yep. kid. Yep. And so, you know, remember in January there'd always be the big special about your year ahead in the stars. Right. So I would consume them voraciously. Athena all- Star Woman, I remember her. Yeah, I remember Athena Star Woman. And and so all through summer I would read these, you know, your year ahead in the stars and become, you know, hopelessly involved in what I thought my my life. So actually I'm a Leo, but this is complicated. I'm going to really have to out myself now. I'm a Leo as Danielle, but as Minnie Dark, author of these two books, I'm a Gemini because she's a twin, you see. So I have two personalities here, but it's not a secret. Right. So. It's not a Secret. It's not a secret. Okay, I didn't know if it was a secret. I've been pr- You've practicing done really saying well. mini, mini, mini. You did really well, Tony. Thank but, you. Yeah, I actually have multiple personalities. Megan did actually throw in the word trope before too. Yeah. Do, yeah. do we want to talk about yes. tropes? Yeah. Do you have a favourite? Do you have a go-to trope in romance? Um. Oh, gee, that's very interesting. Should I have a go at defining trope yes. while, while you yeah. think? Yeah, do that. So tropes are patterns or ideas in in literary texts or in film texts that turn up again and again so you know there's a, a buddy film or you know an education plot those are kind of tropes that you might use again and again or um you know two people meet and they hate each other on first sight hate each other on first sight that That's would good. be a that would be a trope yeah yeah have you thought of one you like yet yeah i like the hate each other at first sight i find that's Okay. Yeah. I, I don't like it. You don't like that? No. Because in here they're friends before they even start, like they're friends from birth. Yeah, yeah. So tell me what you like about the hate each other at first sight trope. Well, 
again, this is the blurring of the academic and the creative and the personal. I've the the times I've been in love, which has only been three, I've had the for the moment of the falling in love moment. So I didn't know these people before. I didn't hate them before, but I didn't know them before, and suddenly it's like, oh my god, I just want to marry you right now. And and that instant of falling in love makes me aware of the potential that you you don't have to even like them. You don't have to know anything about them to have that moment. Okay. And it's interesting. I I think that, um, you know, I've said I don't like that trope. I might be overstating it. Because if you think of Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew and its great-great-granddaughter text, Ten Things I Hate About You with Heath Ledger, Actually, that's where hate at first sight that turns into love is actually done brilliantly. So I think it might be how it's done rather than whether it's done. Or whether it's overdone. Or whether it's overdone. Um, But one that I'm a little fond of is the one that you see turn up here, which is old old lovers meet again. I'm a bit a bit of a sucker for that clickbait, you know, if you see, you know, they didn't see each other for 40 years and then they were reunited. (laughs) I was a sucker for that one. Right. What about the role of social media in romance? Would you write a a book about people who meet on Tinder and then fall in love? I mean, I know lots of people for whom this has happened. I, I feel that I lack personal experience here. I've, you know, I've experienced love in the real world, but I think it's so much a part of of the real world that we live in now and that, that blurring between that extraordinarily curated computer life that we live and then our real life, you know, the, the blurring is now intense. And I have a 15-year-old daughter and um, watching her grow into herself as a, you know, as a romantic subject, you know, somebody who experiences romance and has love affairs and so on. When I was 15, I was reading Sweet Dreams romances and she's certainly not. She's like a whole different kettle of fish. And right. her, my world as a 15-year-old in, you know, the mid-80s was really quite different to the the life she's experiencing as a 15-year-old now in 2020. Mm-hmm. So I think increasingly I think you either have – if you're going to write a contemporary romance, you either have to include that or you have to start setting things historically in order to quite deliberately evade it. Yes, yeah. And what is it about – I mean, Lizzie and Darcy, I guess, are – a lot of people's favourites. And look, see, I said I didn't like the hate at first sight thing. Yeah. You know, Lizzie and Darcy. Yeah. yeah. So out of everybody... My argument's just getting shredded right you, in front of my eyes. <laughs> do you still read that book? Do you still go back and read Pride and Prejudice every so often? I do. Okay. Do you have books you read over Yeah, I again? read Pride and Prejudice every so often, but I do yeah. prefer... I mean, Persuasion is my... Persuasion's your favourite? Yeah, it's my favourite. But what is it that speaks to you above I about love that Lizzie's wit. I, I love that she speaks her mind and yep. has all of that courage to be herself. Mm-hmm. I love that she takes on Lady Catherine and her, her spirit is what I really love about that book. To me, that Lady Catherine scene is actually the most important scene in the book oh, in me my too. understanding yes. of how the structure of romance works. I think readers, and it, it really goes a long way to explain for me why that book is so popular because – Readers like things to be earned. They don't like you just to, oh, he pops up again and proposes again and you've done nothing extraordinary to earn that Mm. second proposal. And this is a scene where it's incredibly difficult for her in her time, you know. It's an older lady, a far more socially 
better, like one of her betters. She's got to really lay it on the line. It's a very difficult thing for a young girl to do. And to me, that enables her to earn that Mm. second proposal. And that's why people feel she deserves it. And that's where a lot of the feeling about that book comes from. What about Anne in Persuasion? What is it about her that rocks your boat? Well, I think really it's not so much Anne. It's that Captain Wentworth is... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The best of the of the Austin heroine, uh, heroes. He's so great. Okay. What is it that makes him so great? Why do you love him? The le- the letter at the end is absolutely exquisite, where he says, "I'm ha- half agony, half hope." Or, or, I think, and it's perfect. And just the way he behaves all the way through, like all the other. I mean, Edmund Barton, I'm sorry, what a drip. The others just do not match up to him. So how do you go about crafting a romantic hero, Tony? What, what, do, what are the essential ingredients of you know, a bloke that you're going to be in love with okay. for the duration of writing a novel and that your readers are going to fall in love yeah, with because your heroine's going to fall You have to, f- you have fall, to f- fall in love with the guy. You do. Um, in a little way while you're writing it. Absolutely. I don't do the alpha hero. I just have no attractiveness for that kind of person i'm not interested in the no chiseled jaw no and i don't like the rich people so much you know the you know billionaire kind Mm. of approach i'm really looking for a heart and a soul and someone who's a little bit lost and oh you're gonna really like ari who's the romantic hero of the lost love song he's an it nerd Right. And and Diana, who's the first woman who falls in love with him in this book, um, she says the thing that I really love about him is that he is that rarest of things. He's a duckling who doesn't know he's already turned into a swan. Oh, that's lovely. Um, so he actually just has no, no big ego. Yeah. So he is really rather luscious and beautiful, but he just doesn't know it. Yeah. And that's right. what makes him yeah, really that's nice. lovely. Yeah. Yep. So you talked about the things that you didn't so much want in a in a hero so he's got to have a heart yeah oh yes yeah it's hard to explain gentlemanliness like chivalry yes yeah that's the way to that's the way to explain it um yeah i'm i'm looking for someone who thinks about other people i find that intensely attractive because if we're thinking about romance in its historical terms a romance wasn't necessarily a love story at all. It was a story of courtliness, of yes. chivalry. Of yes. You know. And so in Persuasion there's one moment, there's a scene where Anne is babysitting her nephews, I think, and they're like brats and they're jumping all over her and she can't make them calm down and he just comes up behind her. This is after she's turned him down and he's had his heart broken and he doesn't particularly want to even be in the same room with her and yet he just comes out behind off behind her and lifts this kid off her back, this toddler off her back. And just the way it's written, it's just because he's thinking about her, even though he, he doesn't actually like her, he quite hates her at this minute, doesn't want to be in the same room with her, but he's thinking about her. I find that very attractive. I'm trying to remember where I read this and I, I can't remember the source, but I do remember reading that the romantic hero needs to have quite early in the book even if he's the character that the the heroine doesn't really like to start with, even if she reacts against him, um, even if he's sort of an anti-hero to begin with, he has to have a Boy Scout moment, a noble moment, where he does something very noble so that you know. 
So this is a, a, a screenwriting rule when people are... Um, Did I read this in your thesis? Uh, maybe. Could is that where I thesis? read it? This is a, I know about this actually. <laughs> this is a screenwriting moment at, that is actually in a lot of screenwriting and it's called Save the Cat. And Save the Cat? Yeah, okay. so whatever happens, you know, if it, they can be as bad as they want really and not likeable, but if they do something, save the metaphorical cat... It brings the reader or the audience on their side. Blake Snyder, uh, yeah, thank you, the Brains Trust, um, <laughs> is the screenwriting teacher that has this kind of philosophy. And it, you see it working and you also see people playing against, playing against it, like House of Cards, the very first episode, the Kevin Spacey character who's the evil guy kills a dog, like in the first episode to dramatically shift that save the cat to show not only are we not we we are just going to go as far as we can the opposite direction from the good person kind of route and what about the the heroine though so we talked about the hero yeah we know what you know we know we have to be a bit in love with him we know what he has to do but what about her what is she, and, and look we haven't even got into non Sort of heteronormative romance yes, here, that's which right. let's just acknowledge that that exists. Yes. Um, yep. um, I've got my latest book is mm-hmm. a relationship with two women and a re- relationship with a man and a woman in, in different time frames. So without wanting to marginalise that, the books of I've course. written have been boy-girl romances. So my experience is kind of at this point limited to, to that. What about the heroine? What... She's got to, she have, to do? have her own energy. She's got to have her own life. I feel like it's a, there's a neediness that I don't kind of respond to. So to me, she has to – but I don't need the, you know, the trope in this example is successful in her business but hopeless in her personal life. And we see that over and over again, Bridget Jones being the big example. And I, I think that's kind of overdone now. She's okay on her own. I, I like the bloke to be needier, actually, to need someone in their life more. What about you? I hadn't thought about it quite that way. If you look at Harriet Vane and Peter Whimsey, like Harriet actually, well, she needs him when they first meet because she's yeah. in prison for murder and possibly going to get hung. So, And he's going to f- actually find the murderer so she does actually need him in quite a dramatic sense mm. um, but for a lot a number of books this beginning spoils the relationship because there's too much debt there for them to both come as free people and it's a so, like some of you have read these um, s- this series and it, it takes her to be the target of a murderer herself and him to almost let her be be like there's a scene where I think it's in oh I can't remember it's not Busman's Holiday it's the one before that thank you so much Gordy Knight yes there is where um, there's a murderer and he is kind of wants this is the 1930s you know he wants to say I forbid you to go out in the dark hunting this murderer and he doesn't because it's an acknowledgement that her life is hers to live and hers to lose if he truly respects her ability to make those decisions. And that kind of allowing her to do her own thing is what enables her to 
kind of realise that she's the he's the bloke for her. I like that independence. Nice. I I wonder if part of the process of writing lovers, whether they're two blokes, two girls, boy and a girl, whatever fluid and exciting adaptation of that you would like, is to create a kind of jigsaw puzzle situation. That's exactly where it. you have to have, you know spaces that can only be filled yes. by this particular person. Yes, what is the thing that that, that, yeah. that person has? And that you have to want these two to somehow be together and to somehow know that by being together their lives will be better. I must admit that a, a, a romantic movie that I, I do not enjoy myself is Pretty Woman and um, I feel I get Pretty Woman hackles on the back of my neck. Is that because the need is transactional and financial? It, it starts that way, but also I can't see the need that the thing that they need give to each other. I can't see the thing that he provides to her, other than you know the ability to buy great dresses, and the thing that she provides to him. I just can't. Which is to have see, some great eye candy on his arm. Yeah, I just can't see the the psychic need for each of them. It's almost like he's kneeling in front of her with the rose or whatever, a bunch of roses at the end, and says, "I love you because we're in this movie together." You know, <laughs> like this. And a, a favorite romantic movie of mine. So one of the probably big influences for me, along with Love Actually. And Love Actually works for me because it has that fractured plot with yes. lots of different yes, yes. stories within it. I, I clearly like that. You can see that from both my books. But another one is um, the French movie Amelie with those right. two beautiful characters who are so shy. And they complement each other though. Yeah. They're, they're, they're perfect so together. exquisitely shy and, and living their own incredibly internal worlds and how, you know, the, the challenge for them both is how do you actually then express that in the outside world? How do you, how do you let that individual, individuality out where it can be seen? So it is Love Actually your most romantic movie? I think Amelie is my most romantic okay. movie. And what I is the it. most romantic moment from Amelie, do you know? I love when she sends... Do, do all of you know Amelie? If you, if you haven't seen it, please do. It's really beautiful. I love when she sends him on a sort of wild goose chase and she's watching him from afar and she gets him to look through the binoculars. Yep. So it's this, all this question of who's, who's being seen and who's doing the seeing and who is the, who is the beloved. And this is an interesting question too. Something I really wanted to do in Starcrossed and one of the reasons why the main character who is a woman is a Sagittarius is because I wanted her to be the hunter. I wanted her to be the archer. I wanted her to be the pursuer. Well, I, I was the hunter, archer and pursuer with my husband and I proposed to him numerous times before he said yes. <laughs> um, so that's... Yeah. So in this book, one of the criticisms I had particularly from um, US readers was that the hero is too passive but actually I wanted him to be the princess. I wanted him yeah. to be the beloved, the pursued, yeah. rather than for the bloke always to have to be the do the pursuing. Yeah. That leads me to my – it's not all – all of it is not my most romantic film, but I, I love Notting Hill and I love there's – a, there's a yes to that one. I love the moment where she says she's the one who – says to him, I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. And then the end, 
is the single most romantic moment. I'm embarrassed to tell you how often I watch that end scene, the press conference scene on YouTube, where he said no. Um, he's realised he's had an error. She's a famous movie star. She's in the press conference announcing that she's leaving the UK. He has to pretend that he's a reporter to get into the press conference. And he says, this person you were seeing, who stands up the back while you're in London, um, is there any chance you're, you would be more than friends? And she goes, I hoped there would be, but I'm assured there there isn't. And he goes, uh, if, if he... If he did realise that he had been a daft prick, um, <laughs> would you reconsider? And she goes, I believe I would. And they, they just kind of look at each other and the the rest of the press corps realises what's going on. There's all these bulbs going off and everyone's taking photos of them and yelling and they only can see each other. Nothing else around them matters. I find that intensely romantic. She's a bit like the scene in uh, one of the Pride and Prejudice adaptations, the one with Kira Knightley. Yeah. And... The, and Matthew, Lizzie and Darcy yep. are dancing and then everybody in the yes, disappears. Yes. That's a beautiful scene. And can, have we got time to talk about the new Emma? Have you seen it? Have, has, I have haven't it? yet. Is it, is it good? I read a great review. I thought it was pretty good. It, it was just one moment. The thing that bothered me about Emma, which you know because it's, I put it in my PhD, is there's a line in there it, that Knightley always seems like he's got a plan. He's working toward a plan and he, there's a line at the end that says, I've, loved, I've been in love with you since you were 13 and 13 was the date. Was, she was 13 when her elder sister married Knightley's brother so it's like he's playing the long game and I never liked that about Emma. I never found that romantic and they've ditched that entirely in this remake and they've given him a moment of falling in love with her at a ball where, he sit, where suddenly instead of treating her like this precocious, slightly bratty child that he always has, he falls in love with her. And it's horrible, of course, to say it's improvement <laughs> because it's Austin, but I really thought it was something that the story needed. Hey, we've talked entirely about Austin. We have not even mentioned the Brontes. Now, I did read somewhere, in fact, there was a debate on in, in Haworth in Yorkshire that I didn't get to. I was just there slightly at the wrong time. I would have loved to go where the topic was you can be a Bronte person or an Austin person but not both. And I found this incredibly confronting because I would no, see myself this is as obvious. both. I'm Austin. I'm all Austin. Oh, no, see, I, again, I'm the, I'm the Gemini. I'm the split personality. <laughs> I'm, you know, I love them both. So not a Bronte person. No, no. Although I, you also know this because it was in my PhD that I have very fond wishes toward a, a session that was at um, the Cheltenham Literary Festival a few years ago, which was entitled Darcy or Heathcliff, Who is the Biggest? <laughs> <laughs> so, Tony, I think our time is coming to an end and we should ask some, get some questions. But I before so. we do, what are you working on? I'm just having a slight post-PhD relax and then I'm going to be starting something else really soon. Can you tell us anything about what you're studying? Like anything? Uh, I, I see, it's a family, I think. I think a, a broader thing with a few things going on. Yeah. So I'll bring the microphone around. Do you want to just raise your hand if you have a any, question? Do you have any questions for us? I have a question. A question? I was really intrigued about what you were saying about obstacles. And I think in some senses one of the obstacles in our times is the lack of privacy. And in some senses, I think that's a kind of a barrier between people. 
because they that lack of privacy means people hold on to what they have so tightly that that revealing themselves to one, to one another becomes very risky. What do you think about that? That's a that's a really interesting viewpoint, and I'm going to. Like later on tonight, I'm, I'll think more about that. I'm willing to bet I'll wake up at two o'clock in the morning and think about that. Um, but I, I wonder if there's such pressure to curate your life now and to uh, to have a, a particular image. I have three children, so I have a 15-year-old and two 11-year-olds, and someone explained to me that my children are growing up in a world where one of the things they have to do from before they can even articulate this is that they have to establish and maintain a brand. So having this idea about who you are and having some kind of cohesion in the image that you put out into the world and, you know, with your – I mean, none of my children actually use um, social media. The eldest does at a very limited degree. The younger ones don't. But I see my eldest one's friends having to sort of come up with some sort of consistency in their image. You know, when they're 15 and, you know, when – I remember being 15. One day I was this sort of – you know, one day I was a – I know, a hippie and the next day I was, you know, wearing all black and being terribly sort of gothic and emo or, you know, whatever. So that kind of moment where you are really fluid in your identity is really hard for kids these days. But once you get older, you sort of calcify into some kind of image and I think the pressure to have this facade is really, you know, huge these days and and this sort of facade image that we, you know, feel the need to project. Anything else? Megan. <laughs> so one of the categories in our autumn book binge that a lot of the library is doing uh, is recent releases. If you had to recommend one book other than your own, of course, um, that you read in the last year that you think someone would love, a romance, um, could you recommend us a book? Well, I recommend everything of Anne's. <laughs> <laughs> because they're so romantic that they're, they're just um and Gracie and they're very romantic and they're so surprising I think is the is the words for them I I'm, I'm not sure that either thing I'm going to say fits squarely into the category but I recently read Jojo Moyes's Giver of Stars and I found that I, I really enjoyed living in the world of of that book enjoyed the way the women really were such strong characters against all odds. I really enjoyed that in that book. And I'm um, halfway through Marion Keyes's Grown Ups. It's big. It's a big book. There are times when I'm thinking, did it need to be quite this long? But then I actually to tell every story in it, again, it has many, many stories. To tell every story, it probably does need to be that long. And there's one character in particular who I'm desperately worried about. And she has sort of a great love story with her husband and I'm relying on him to come to her rescue. I think I think he's going to. I think he's going to work out what's going on with her and help her. I really hope he is. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying Marion Keys. I think she I think she gets pigeonholed and, and she herself has said in interviews, actually, I think I'm dealing with really big issues. But her, her books tend to be dismissed as a bit frothy which is such a shame because again in this book she's dealing with some really you know big issues. Um, my question's following on from Deb's suggestion. I'm always interested in that moment where 
a bit of an idea here, an image there or whatever, starts to coalesce and you think, actually, this is going to be a book. Can you talk about that maybe? Yeah, I know for me this most recent one called The Fragments, which is a literary mystery with two romances in it. So it's a, it's one of those secret in the lost book and then the modern day people discover the secret in the lost book then we go back in time to see the writing of the missing book and then back like that and I've always loved book like books like that like A.S. Byatt's Possession which I think incredi- is incredibly romantic as well yep but that the thing that got me to thinking about that book was two things really the first was the unmasking of Elena Ferrante do you remember so she's the Italian novelist who wrote the Neapolitan series and enormously successful and she wrote under a pseudonym but a top secret pseudonym where she didn't want anyone to know who she was and when nobody knew who she was I was dying to know who she was so um, I know her Australian publisher we both know her Australian publisher and I would say to him come on you must know come on and he's like honestly I don't know I was really really desperate and then what happened was a, a financial journalist uh, went through the public, publicly available records of the publishing house that she was published by and found all these enormous checks going to somebody that had on the surface no relationship with this publishing house and did this big front page scoop, this is who she was. Now, as soon as this unveiling happened, immediately I did not want to know who she was. And in fact, I had the shits with this guy for doing this big unveiling. And it made me think about the identity of authors and why we care so much, why I cared so much and why I wanted to know until I knew and then I didn't want to know. And I found that whole unpicking of the role of the person who makes the story to be a really interesting part of it and and the story grew from there. I saw Margaret Atwood speak in Hobart last week and Margaret Atwood famously said, wanting to meet a writer because you like their work is like wanting to meet a duck because you like pate. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think is just the most wonderful quote. And I challenge you all to really think about that at two o'clock in the morning. But actually, it would be my ideal thing to create myself afresh for every book. I would actually rather have a new writer for every book. So if you think about it, the idea of narration in a story is actually a really mysterious and amazing, like a collusion that we all enter into. So if the narrator of of the story is a first-person narrator or a character who's within the world of the story, it's obvious who that narrator is. But if we're talking about that kind of third-person narrator who's watching the events of the story and and able to report on it, perhaps they focalise more through one character and then through another character. Who exactly is that narrator? If I'm writing the book, is it me? Tony's writing the book, is it Tony? Is it a version of Tony? Or is it someone else that Tony or I have invented to carry the story for us? And when I'm writing as Minnie Dark... I've almost invented the first character in the universe. I've invented the writer first. So you make up the writer and then that sort of gives you the voice and then the voice tells the story. 
And I would like to do that with every book. For every book, I would like to invent someone new to tell the story. That would be my ideal, but that doesn't really work for publishers. The reason I have this pseudonym, Mini Dark, and then I write as myself, Danielle Wood, and then Heather Rose and I write together as uh, Angelica Banks, we write children's books together. Um, readers generally really like authors to do what's advertised on the tin, and if you do something different, it can be very discombobulating for them. Agatha Christie was also Mary Westmacott. She wrote her romance novels as Mary Westmacott. We're not answering your question, Anne, which was about the creative process of deciding when, when, something, when something coalesces. I remember reading recently too, I'm just trying to grab hold in my mind of where I read this. It was in a Brene Brown book. So it was either Rising Strong or Daring Greatly. I've read them both in the last year. Um, she was musing on creativity, which is, and she, and she quoted someone as saying that creativity is when you take two ideas that are seemingly unrelated or several ideas that are seemingly unrelated and you put them together. So sometimes, you know the Araldite packs? You know, you've got the two lots of glue, yeah? So sometimes you start and you've only got the clear glue and you know that there's something in the clear glue but it's not until you get the cloudy glue to mix with the other one and you go, oh, now I've got a chemical reaction. So sometimes you've only got one bit and you have to wait for the other bit and often happens to me in the shower yeah the shower is incredibly productive space yeah I use a lot of hot water thank you can I just actually say thank you to you Megan and to librarians for doing the work that you do and for hosting events like this and just to libraries generally for being I I do a lot of different work in Hobart. So you know, I'm an academic, I'm a writer, I'm a mother. So I'm always wanting something from a library. And the amazing regularity with which our state library has what I want or can get what I want is just amazing. It is actually the most remarkable resource. We must treasure our libraries and use them and talk about how much we love them and talk about how awesome they are because if we lost them, there would be a hole in our lives. So can I just say thank you, libraries. You, you're fabulous. Ah, thank you, Minnie. Your library loves you right back. You've been listening to a Yarra Libraries podcast. That was Minnie Dark and Tony Jordan talking romance in fiction and film in early March 2020. We may not be running in-person events right now, but there's a full suite of online events you can book into via our website. Visit us there and book into our online book clubs, our author talks and our cultural forums. Interested in any of the books discussed today? Have a look in your show notes. You'll find them all listed there and you can search for them on the Yarra Libraries website. <laughs>